To even begin to summarize Professor Taylor's distinguished career at UCLA would not leave any time for her to speak. So I'm just going to mention three of the honors she received in the last two years. She was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Psychological Association. She received the Patricia R. Burkus Award in Sociophysiology from the American Psychosomatic Society. And most notably, Shelley Taylor was elected to the National Academy of Sciences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Shelley Taylor. I'm going to talk tonight about a topic that is near and not very dear to anyone's heart, and that's uh, stress. Most people believe that stress causes illness, that it causes acute illnesses such as colds or flus, and that it causes chronic illness such as um, cancer, or at least contributes to it, cancer and heart disease. And these intuitions are largely correct. And what I want to talk about tonight are the pathways that link stress to adverse health outcomes like these. Now I want to start out by giving you a little bit of background on the study of stress and health. Um, it's not a terribly old field. Uh, it began with a lot of case history information that people tried to make sense of. And one particular example is uh, nightmare death. When the um, Hmong uh, refugees from Cambodia came to the United States following the Vietnam War, there was a cluster of what was called nightmare deaths. Uh, the deaths occurred among men who were typically working a couple of jobs to try to make ends meet. They were working late into the evening. And when they came home, they watched television, uh, which was a relatively new experience, and it was violent television. The combination of stress and the violent television produced stress responses in their sleep and many of these men succumbed to those stress responses. Now, how do we know that these are the factors? Some people were revived, and the common thread was that they had been watching violent television and they were all overworked. In addition, though, nightmare deaths tended to run in families, and so that made people realize that there were genetic susceptibilities that would probably also be implicated. Now, another early type of research on stress with which some of you may be familiar is personality profiles. Um, there have been uh, a number of different efforts to define people who are at risk for different disorders. One that used to receive a good deal of attention was the cancer-prone personality, um, des described as a person who's easygoing, acquiescent, repressing emotions that might interfere with smooth social functioning. There is no evidence for the cancer-prone personality. Um, it has nonetheless lingered for quite some time. But another example is the type A personality, and there is a kernel of truth in the type A personality research. And the idea here is that the, a person who is predisposed to hostility, to uh, rapid explosive speech, uh, completing other people's sentences, uh, competitive achievements, drivings, we all know people like this. Um, there, there is some evidence that these factors are indeed implicated in the development of heart disease, particularly hostility. However, it isn't clear whether it is the hostility that is causing the risk or whether the risk, the biological reactivity, in fact contributes to uh, hostility. 
Now, more recent uh, studies have been what we might call demonstration studies, and we've actually seen empirical evidence. Uh, for example, people complete stress scales where they click off, uh, check off the events that they've experienced over, say, the past year. Um, we know uh, from previous research how stressful these are. And basically, you sum these up and relate it to illness over the subsequent six months. And what you find is a small, and I emphasize small, but consistent relationship with, between the number of life events that people experience and their risk for illness. Research at this time also began to uncover some of the stress moderators. And what I mean by that are factors that intervene in the link between stress and health. One of the chief ones being uh, social support. We know that people who get a lot of support or who say they have a lot of support are more healthy. They live longer. They're less susceptible both to acute disorders and to chronic diseases. And we know that people who are socially isolated have an elevated risk for mortality. So this is really pretty well established. Um, as investigators became more sophisticated, we began to try to understand what some of the underlying biological changes were. And a lot of uh, the work of this period in the 1990s emphasized the immune system. And one example, uh, which is near and dear to the hearts of many of you who are here, is that the stress of exams. Um, and we know that when students are facing exams, uh, they experience elevations in natural killer cell activity and in other kinds of immune activity and, uh, and, and can subsequently become susceptible to colds, flus, and other uh, disorders. Now, currently, research is oriented around developing complex multivariate models that try to focus on unfolding mechanisms over time and, in, des in essence, is taking together all of the observations that have occurred over the previous few decades and trying to build models. Now, this is a really big model, but I'll, I'll walk you through it. This is the model that has been guiding the research that we do. And you can think of it as, as how stress unfolds across time to increase risk for disorders. We focus, first of all, on the early environment, in particular childhood SES and the early family environment. We focus on genetic predispositions in several systems. We look at how these factors combine to influence the development of psychosocial resources, such as social support. Um, we look at neural responses to stress, namely how the brain regulates stress responses. And I'm going to show you um, some evidence on that in a, in a minute or two. Uh, we look at coping mechanisms, uh, psychological distress, and then look at how all of these factors go together to affect psychological and biological stress responses that ultimately become risks for acute and chronic disorders. So what I'm going to do uh, this evening is first talk about the origins of adult health outcomes in the early environment and in genes and their interaction, talk about how the brain responds to stress depending upon 
uh, whether uh, one has had a uh, stressful early life, and then finally talk about the health risks. So every scientist gets hooked by a question. Something that, that happens that you see that you don't understand. And this is one of the questions that has hooked us, which is why does the early environment, and I'm talking about the first, oh, eight, ten years of life, why does it affect health not only in childhood, but throughout adulthood and into old age? It's not immediately obvious why that would be the case. Um, but if you grow up in an early adverse environment, particularly one that is marked by poverty or violence, your chance of an early onset chronic disease is significantly elevated. So we have looked at two, actually let me, let me just talk about these two. We've looked at two major factors in early childhood, and the first is childhood socioeconomic status, which predicts health outcomes controlling for adult SES. Uh, and as you may know, there is a linear relationship between SES and uh, agent mortality, and the same gradient uh, can be seen for most major chronic disorders. The other factor that we focus on is a harsh early family environment that is marked by conflict, by cold, non-nurturant parenting, or by neglect, and we call them risky families, and they also predict health outcomes. I want to say a little bit about uh, how we assess family environment. We use a number of methods. One is called the Risky Families Questionnaire, and these are examples of a few of the items. It's a number, it has a number of, of uh, uh, more items in it. We also do interviews with people about their early childhood. And just parenthetically, I want to give you a bit of, of, of um, observational evidence from these interviews. One of the things that, that we do is we sit people down. The very first thing we say to them is, tell us a little bit about your family. In the people who subsequently are seen to come from nurturant families, what happens is you get a forward lean, and the person says, well, let's see, there's me and my mom and my dad and my brother who can sometimes be a pain, and there's our dog, Trixie, and they go on and on and on, and big forward lean. When we ask that same or give that same prompt to someone who is from a family that is subsequently determined to be risky, we almost always get a backward lean, and the person says, what, what would you like to know? And I have always thought I've got to go back through those videotapes and see how perfectly that body language and response is correlated with, um, uh, with these uh, uh, responses. Now, what I want to show you next is a, the results of a, a study that was done by Vincent Felitti, and he used the Risky Family Questionnaire and related the number of stressful events that people reported they had gone through to a great many disorders. His population was the entire um, uh, users of Kaiser, so he had thousands of participants in his research. And what he found, and what you will see on the far right-hand side of that slide, 
is that the more stress you have experienced in childhood, the greater your risk, in this case for heart disease, any cancer, and stroke. And I should say that he sent everybody in Kaiser the questionnaire, which they filled out, but the health data were archived data. And so this is really quite persuasive evidence. And I could show you six more slides just like this. But what I want you to see is how the odds ratios increase the more stress you've had. So our work has focused on why. We know the relationship is there. Why is it there? And we look at three particular mechanisms. One is alterations in biological stress regulatory systems. The second is alterations or differences in how the brain processes threat cues. And the third is um, expression of genes related to stress responses. So let me start with the first of these mechanisms. There are two primary stress systems in the body. They are the sympathetic nervous system, indicators of which are heart rate and blood pressure, for example, and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which uh, is responsible for the release of stress hormones, including cortisol. Um, now, what happens in response to stress? In response to chronic or recurring stress, there are several possible ways in which these systems might become compromised. One is that they lose their elasticity, because what stress responses are supposed to do is go up in response to stress, come back down. Elevated blood pressure is a good example of a system that has somewhat lost its elasticity. Another uh, indicator is stress sensitivity, people who show very um, large stress responses. And we see this primarily among, in early childhood and among uh, adolescents and young adults. And then finally, we look at recovery. And a sign that stress systems might be compromised uh, is a, a difficulty recovering from stress. And any of us who are older adults probably recognize that it's a little harder to pop back from stress. I, my research assistants sometimes participate in these studies, and I'm always so impressed with how quickly their heart rate and blood pressure come down because you just don't see that in, uh, in the older, uh, older adults. Okay, the first study I want to tell you about um, basically addresses this question, does the early environment affect biological stress regulatory systems? It's a study of 92 young adults who were pre-screened for medical and psychological problems, and we exposed them to a task that none of you would enjoy doing. Um, we ask them to count backwards as quickly as possible by 13s from 9,095. And while they're doing it, there is an experimenter standing over them saying, no, that's not right. Start over. Um, can you go a little faster? This is one of our former graduate students, Cleopatra, who uh, graciously agreed to be our model, but it captures very nicely um, what, uh, uh, what um, uh, this is like. So what, what happens in response to these, um, uh, what do these stress systems show in response to stress as a function of the early environment. 
We bring them in, we, do, we did our assessments of the early environment, we put them through the stress tests, and then we look at several responses. First, we look at cortisol. Normal cortisol responses to stress are shown in this blue line. Cortisol goes up and cortisol comes down in response to stress. A sign that the uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis might be showing some compromise is a flat and elevated cortisol response. And that is what you see in these kids from risky families. The harsh early environment is associated with an elevated flat cortisol response to stress. What we also see is among, only among the men, a very harsh family environment is associated with elevated heart rate and blood pressure. These are the um, heart rate responses. And if you look at the far right-hand side of that slide, the blue line, what you see are the men consistently showing elevated heart rate and the blood pressure look very much the same. Now, you might ask, why is it only the men? Uh, why isn't it the women? And you uh, probably are aware that men are at greater risk for early heart disease and hypertension than women are. Women ultimately catch up in terms of risk, um, but not until they're in their 60s, whereas men are more likely to show these problems in their 40s and 50s. Uh, and so, uh, and, and sadly, we can see these changes begin in males as early as age eight. We don't see them in, in females that, uh, that soon. So um, from this study, we can conclude that a harsh early family environment appears to be tied to some compromised biological responses to stress, and as such, begins to provide a bit of a, um, a piece of evidence for the mechanism of, of the effects of stress on biological stress regulatory systems. Okay. What I want to turn to next are the effects of the environment on how the brain processes stress. And first I wanna give you a little background about kids who come from these risky families that I've been describing. They don't cope very well with stress and their coping is distinguished by several particular factors. They show a lot of avoidant coping, by which I mean they try to tune out stressors as much as possible and essentially pretend that the stress isn't happening. However, if there is a stressor that, with which they have to engage, they're more likely to show an overly aggressive response to stress that others perceive as only moderately challenging. You know, the kind of thing like you're planning to pull into a parking space and some car beats you to it. I mean, most people go and move on, uh, but there are people who don't respond that way. Um, I'm not saying they're all from risky families, but some of them are likely to be. And then finally, ineffective coping. The kids from risky families exhibit coping patterns that don't seem to work very well for them. And so the question we were interested in is, can we actually see this in the brain? Can we see why these patterns of coping exist? And so the two candidates that we looked at for um, uh, in this regard were, first of all, the amygdala. The amygdala is part of the limbic system and it responds to cues of threat and, and responds to fear and stress. 
And we also looked at what is called the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, which I will subsequently abbreviate as the prefrontal cortex, which regulates responses to threats. So typically, if, uh, the, if the prefrontal cortex is engaged, the, the amygdala response goes down. And if it's not, the amygdala response stays high. So this is an uh, fMRI study, so it's a small sample. We had 30 um, adults, uh, and they responded to three tasks in the scanner. Now, they go into the scanner, um, and, and you, uh, you put, well, i describe it from my vantage point because I do it. I'm the pilot subject. Um, you put on goggles, and you go in and you see pictures. And they're exposed to three sets of pictures. Um, for one-third of the trials, they observe uh, pictures of fearful or angry faces. The face comes on. There's nothing that they have to do. And that task typically engages the amygdala. We see amygdala activation because fearful and angry faces are threat cues. They basically tell you the environment is scary in some way. And so you see a reaction to this. Um, in the second condition, they are asked to label the emotion. So they have a little thing that they take into the scanner with them, and they press the button for whether the person seems angry or scared, and there are other alternatives. What this task does is it engages the prefrontal cortex, because now they have to interpret the threat cues. So they're not just responding to the threat cues. And when the prefrontal cortex is engaged, the amygdala response tends to go down. And then we have a control task where they simply indicate the gender of the person. So what happens? Well, the first thing that we find is that the kids who come from these risky families show significantly lower activity in the amygdala when they're only observing the angry and fearful faces. It's as if they're tuning them out. The alternative explanation is even sadder, and that is that they are so used to seeing angry and fearful faces in their risky families that they've habituated to them. And so they don't evoke the normal stress response that you would otherwise see. However, when we get to the labeling task, this is one where the prefrontal cortex gets engaged. And what you see is under these circumstances, the amygdala responses of the people from harsh families are actually higher. It's a task that they can't avoid. Um, the most important thing we found is illustrated in this slide. And you remember I told you that when you engage the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, um, you, it, it typically downregulates amygdala responses, and that's exactly what you see in the kids from the nurturant families, the blue line. However, what you see in the people from the risky families is a strong positive correlation between activity in these two regions, which suggests that although the prefrontal cortex is activated and perhaps trying to cope, it's not doing the job of downregulating these amygdala responses. Okay, so what do these results suggest? Well, they suggest that offspring from risky families shed out cues, threatening cues, when they don't have to engage. But when they're forced to engage by task demands, their amygdala response is actually stronger. They're experiencing more threat. 
And the results also suggest that offspring from risky families don't recruit the prefrontal cortex for regulating their coping responses as effectively as children who are raised in nurturant environments. Um, so what we see is that growing up in a risky family actually has effects at the level of the brain. So you can see what the residual effects of harsh parenting is, and it suggests that threat detection and emotion regulation skills may be compromised. Okay, the next um, data I would like to talk about has to do with whether the early environment affects the expression of genes related to managing threat. Now, we all learned about genes probably for the first time when we were in junior high school. I know that that's when I learned about it. And what you, what you learn is that the, the genes are fixed, you know, that if you've got the gene, that's pretty much it. So for example, if you have a gene for a particular eye color, your eye color's not gonna change, except if you wear very colorful contact lenses, of course. But otherwise, it's, it's there, it's staying with you. But for certain behavioral characteristics, that's not the case. Um, they change their expression, often significantly, based on input from the environment. So what we're gonna talk about, uh, we, we've looked at about six or seven genes in this regard, but I wanna tell you in particular about the serotonin transporter gene. Most of you have, have heard of serotonin, and uh, you know that serotonin reuptake is influenced by a number of drugs that are treatments for depression, such as Prozac, um, and it's associated with, with mood effects. The serotonin transporter gene has two alleles. It has a long allele and a short allele. Um, and uh, people are either LLs, they have two long, SLs, which would be about half of us, um, and, or they're short, short. And the short, short genotype of the serotonin transporter gene is thought to be risky. Um, I'm showing you here some data that came from a very important study by Afshalom Caspi and his colleagues that appeared in Science. And if you look at the far right side of each of these four graphs, what you see is the people who have two copies of this S allele are at greater risk for depressive symptoms, depressive episodes, thoughts of suicide, and the like. I want you now to focus on the far left of this graph. And what you start to see is a crossover interaction. It looks like that SS genotype is risky in the context of stress, but might actually be protective if you're not going through stress. And that's what we were interested in following up. So we had 118 men and women complete assessments of the early environment Reaceful, sorry, recent stressful events and an inventory uh, assessing depression and we genotyped for this serotonin transporter gene, the 5-HTTLPR, using DNA that we get from saliva. The first result that we found is that if you've gone through a risky early environment, your risk for a bout of depression or multiple bouts of depression across your life is elevated. 
The second thing we found is that the harsh family environment interacts with this genotype to affect risk for depression. And if you look at the far left side here, you can see how dramatic that interaction is. So if you have this SS genotype and you're going through um, and, you, and you had a risky early family environment, your likelihood of, of elevated depressive symptomatology is, is higher. However, if you go, th if you went, uh, had a particularly nurturant environment, and you are, um, uh, and you have this SS genotype, you are protected against depression. So what we're seeing here is a genotype that actually flips its expression depending upon the stressfulness of the early environment. And what I want you to see is that this actually works for the current social environment, too, so that people who are SS for this uh, gene are protected against depressive symptomatology if they're in a low-stress and supportive environment, but they're at greater risk if they are in a current stressful environment. And our assessments of the current environment and uh, the early childhood environment are, are correlated at a very low level. So we're actually looking at two fairly independent effects. So what do we conclude? We conclude that the early or current environment in conjunction with this quite labile genotype, the SS uh, genotype, uh, predicts depression in conjunction or depressive symptomatology in conjunction with stress, either early or current, but that nurturant environment significantly reverse that effect. We've seen this actually, um, I'll just say parenthetically, we've now seen this in six or seven different genes. And uh, so, so people have referred to them as plasticity genes. They're basically genes that are highly responsive to what's going on in the environment. So let's revisit the question that I posed to you at the very beginning, which is why does the early environment affect health across the lifespan? And um, I think we have at least a few possible mechanisms. One is that biological stress regulatory systems change over time, and they become somewhat compromised through the process of repeated um, or chronic exposure to stress. A second process involves neural mechanisms. The early environment influences the way the brain processes cues suggestive of stress. A third factor is people from risky families respond inappropriately to stress. They just don't cope very well with stress behaviorally. And then finally, the, current, the uh, genetic environment, the early and current environment may affect the expression of genes related to stress responses and ultimately to health. Okay, so what I want to do next is focus on a particular box in this um, chart, and that is the psychosocial resources box. Um, we believe that another reason why people who come from risky families uh, don't manage uh, stress very well and why they ultimately incur health risks 
is because they lack psychosocial resources. And we focused on four in particular, which uh, Bruce alluded to in his very nice introduction. One of, a primary one is social support. Social support is either the belief or the reality that there are people in your life who care for you and that you are part of a network of mutual assistance and obligations uh, so that you feel connected to other people. It can be either a perception or it can be a reality, but participation in social events and having close others is a very major contributor to health outcomes. The effects are on par with well-established risk factors such as cigarette smoking and cholesterol, lipid levels. Um, the second one is optimism, the ability to be optimistic about the future. Um, high levels of optimism in several studies have been connected to positive health outcomes. Um, both managing them um, and the likelihood of getting them. And it, it predicts such things as getting out of the hospital sooner after a major surgery. Optimism is a good predictor of that. The third one is mastery, the sense that you have control, not complete control, but at least some control over the environment and your own behaviors in it. And people who have low levels of mastery incur health risks, which have been especially established for coronary artery disease. And then finally, self-esteem, the ability to feel good about oneself. Um, low self-esteem is a very potent predictor of both adverse psychological and physiological responses to stress. And so what we wanted to do was see if these psychosocial resources operate by keeping neural responses to threat low. Um, and so, oh, I'm a slide behind myself, I'm sorry. Um, we had 120 participants in this study. They completed our measures of psychosocial resources. And then some of them uh, completed the fearful faces task that I described to you previously. And then everybody came into the lab and took part in several stressful lab procedures, including the counting backwards task and delivering a speech to an unresponsive audience. And it's, it's just, it's, it, we put them through a lot. It's amazing that they put up with us. Um, so what we find is that among people who have strong psychosocial resources, we see more downregulation of the amygdala by the prefrontal cortex in that labeling task that I described to you earlier. So basically, they're looking like the kids who come from nurturant families. We're not focusing on nurturant families here, but that's what they're looking like. We also see that strong psychosocial resources, people who come into these lab tasks with strong psychosocial resources have lower cortisol responses to our tasks and lower blood pressure responses to our tasks. And importantly, 
lower amygdala activity actually mediates the relationship between psychosocial resources and the low cortisol responses. And so essentially what we're doing here is we're integrating evidence across three very different levels of analysis. The first being psychological assessments of these resources, the second being the neural responses to threat cues in the brain, the third being cortisol responses. It's integration across three different occasions and it's highly significant in the sense of providing us with a very, uh, with a pathway that helps us understand the protective effects of psychosocial resources on the stress health relationship. So, um, basically we conclude that these psychosocial resources affect um, prefrontal cortical downregulation of amygdala responses, which in turn lead to lower neuroendocrine stress responses. And I'd like now to turn to the question of can we actually predict health-related outcomes? Because I've shown you evidence for blood pressure and heart rate and cortisol, but can we actually pr um, predict anything having more directly to do with health? We've had the privilege of, of collaborating with a group called Cardia, and they have investigated risk for heart disease in 3,300 whites and African Americans in four sites around the United States over the past 20 years. And at year 15, they very kindly allowed us to add some of our measures, including the risky families measure. And so what we looked at in this data set are first are, are four health-related outcomes. The first is metabolic functioning, metabolic syndrome, which is a composite index including high weight, insulin resistance, high glucose levels, and high cholesterol. And it's a risk factor for several disorders including diabetes and coronary heart disease. We look also at C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein is a marker of inflammatory processes, and some of you may be now getting your C-reactive protein results from your physicians, because a number of physicians think that C-reactive protein is actually a better indicator, indicator of risk for heart disease than cholesterol is. Um, so C-reactive protein has been tied to both mental and physical health disorders, especially depression and heart disease. And then we also looked at high blood pressure and we looked at increasing blood pressure over the 20 years that these people were studied. Um, we use a technique called um, causal modeling, um, hierarchical uh, linear modeling, well, actually these are causal models. And I noticed today that my um, my numbers weren't in this slide. So, uh, but basically what, what you do with this technique is you look at the interrelations among all the variables and you ask the question, does your model fit the data? And do alternative models fit it better or more poorly? And so what we do is we use our model, and this is the model for metabolic functioning. And we pit it against a model that has no psychosocial functioning variable in it, for example. We pit it against a model that gives negative affect priority. We have several alternatives that we can look at. And what we find is that our model was supported in all four cases with, um, of these health outcomes. We find that it predicted 
poor metabolic functioning. We find that it predicts elevated C-reactive protein, although most of these, most of the variants roots through uh, obesity, not, not exclusively through psychosocial resources. And importantly, we found that the model explains both elevated blood pressure and a trajectory of increasing blood pressure over time, uh, including uh, some hypertensives in this sample. Okay, so general conclusions. Um, I think we have some evidence for a general model of the effects of stress on health, antecedents of which include certain genes, the early environment, which may interact with each other, as you saw. These antecedents affect psychosocial resources, which include, but are probably not limited, to optimism, mastery, self-esteem, and social support. These factors also affect how the brain regulates um, stress and neuroendocrine responses to stress. So it provides potential, a potential mechanism or set of mechanisms for the effects of stress on health across the lifespan. So basically, we, we, we come to the end and the question is, well, what do we do about it? Can we change this? Is there anything, are there any interventions that might offset the early risks that people acquire? And there are several, I think, several possible avenues to pursue. One of these are interventions with families. I mean, clearly you would want to intervene with families to offset or reduce these risky families' environment. And one of them, I think, is, is parenting skills training. I'm always amazed that we teach our kids trigonometry, which is a skill that small landowners in the 1700s found very important, but which doesn't serve us terribly well. But we don't tell our kids, we don't do a very good job of telling our kids what effective parents is all about. So that would certainly be one point of departure. A second is early detection of troubled families. I think if you can get early warning signs and intervene quickly, that's a very good move to make, in part because it looks to us like it doesn't take a whole lot of stress to, uh, to set these dynamics into operation. Our kids who are from risky families are not abused kids for the most part. They're just from families that are chaotic um, and, uh, and, and conflict-ridden or cold. Um, family interventions. It is possible to intervene uh, with families directly, teach parenting skills even after the adverse dynamics are in place, and these interventions are fairly successful with one caveat. The caveat is that when there is an economic downturn, parenting tends to revert to the poorer parenting uh, practices. Um, a second type of intervention that we might undertake is stress interventions, which are employed, as you know, in a lot of work organizations right now. And I've just listed some of the components of the typical stress intervention, which includes identifying and monitoring the, the events that you personally find stressful in your life, identifying the antecedents of those stress, so trying to understand what are the conditions that evoke this feeling of being stressed, avoiding negative um, self-talk, oh, I'll never be able to do it, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just mess up. Um, acquiring skills such as reframing potentially stressful events in a more benign way, time management skills, 
setting personal goals for reducing stress, and positive self-talk. You know, you're doing better. This went a lot better than it usually does, that kind of thing. And then finally, coping interventions. There are a lot of interventions that uh, seek to increase coping effectiveness, including skills for positive reappraisal, relaxation skills, um, cognitive behavioral management skills, and better health habits like diet and exercise. A second type of coping intervention that is now enjoying quite widespread use is mindfulness training. And, and meditation, basically trying to get people to relax and to focus on the here and now, uh, rather than worrying, uh, thinking about what's going to come or what just happened. Writing interventions, expressive writing interventions. When people are given the opportunity to write about intensely stressful events that they have been through, you see a short-term increase in distress, but a very reliable long-term decrease in adverse health outcomes. So we know that these expressive writing interventions have health benefits. And then finally, interventions to increase social support, to try to get people to appraise their networks as more supportive or to actually experience them as more supportive. And one of the nice things about social support is that it often takes just one confidant, not a lot of organizations that you have to go to, but just one confidant to uh, bring about those feelings of social support. So what I'd like to do is acknowledge my funding sources, the National Institute on Aging and the National Science Foundation, and some of my collaborators, although a couple of you will see that your names aren't up there. Um, we have had so many wonderful student volunteers in the lab uh, who have helped us out. And here is a picture of my graduate lab, and I want to thank you very much.